great. Well, today I have with me Susan Wolf. Susan is the Edna J. Corey Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at UNC Chapel Hill, and she works chiefly in ethics and its close relations in philosophy of mind, philosophy of action, political philosophy, and aesthetics. Her interests range widely over moral psychology, value theory, and normative ethics. And uh, today I'm going to talk with Susan Wolf about her uh, work mainly in moral responsibility. So thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure. So I've been kind of, um, I think I mentioned this to you in the in the email um, where I reached out uh, to you over. And um, yeah, I've been kind of working my way through some, you know, classic papers in moral responsibility. And uh, I, I read recently two of yours, um, your 1980 paper, Asymmetrical Freedom, and then the 81 paper, uh, The Importance of Having Free Will. And if I'm, if I'm correct, those were actually your first two papers you published. Is that right? Uh, probably, yes. I okay. Think okay. <laughs> um, and I loved both of these papers. You know, I, I think I told you, um, I read uh, The Importance of Having Free Will first. Um, and, and, you know, I, that is a paper that I've reread a, a couple of times since the first reading. And I think I told you, you know, it's, it's such a wonderful paper because you kind of have this reveal at the end of the paper, you know, the main kind of turn, um, the point you make, and it's, it's a wonderful paper. So I'll post um, the PDFs to both of those if, if people want to read either of them. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Um, I was curious before we, before we talk about both of the papers, um, I was just curious how you got into being interested in free will and moral responsibility in the first place. Oh, gosh. Um, well, I, 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 it's probably hard to say. I mean, from my perspective, who isn't interested in free will and moral responsibility? It, it seems like, um, you know, this is a big question that it's, it's very common for people to get worried about. Um, I mean, the simple thought is um, determinism might be true, I, you know, especially I think in, in our uh, secular uh, world, you know, physiological determinism might be true, right? And that seems pretty quickly to get you into thinking, oh my gosh, I, you know, I have no control over anything I do. It's, you know, I, I it's all an illusion that I'm anything, and uh, it's very upsetting. So I, I guess I think that's really common. It's um, it's I think a a, um, a a bit of a folk wisdom in in philosophy that well, if you're trying to get somebody interested in philosophy, just start talking about free will because people get into it really quickly and they just want to, you know, yeah, fight it out or or lose sleep over it or whatever and so yeah it seems to be a pretty basic question and then I guess the only other thing to say in more personally is somehow and I don't really know how I got the idea from I don't know my teachers my fellow students that um people didn't talk about that anymore that somehow it was uh, it was a non-issue. It was um, maybe compatible. I think compatibilism, the view that ah, determinism isn't really a threat, that's just an illusion, um, you know, was the truth. And so they didn't, it wasn't interesting to talk about it anymore. And then I took a seminar in graduate school with the person who became my advisor, Thomas Nagel, who has a, a very independent thinker and he believes look these philosophical problems they're really deep and they're never you know he he didn't follow custom and he sort of made it permissible to, to think wait a second you know <laughs> what what's really going on here he he allowed the question to be he allowed me to ask the question and to take it seriously and to realize that all these people who think oh you know we're above that um we're not um didn't really have a good basis for that. And that, so that sort of gave me the, the courage to work on it as a- Wow, that's so cool. I didn't know uh, Nagel was your advisor. I've, his moral luck paper is you know, a classic one in this area. Yeah. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, it, it's, um, 
You know, it, uh, it's interesting because, I mean, I found my way into this literature when I was pretty young. Um, I grew up in like a, a deeply Christian household. And so the problem of theological determinism and foreknowledge was, you know, a central, you know, it was really kind of my first skeptical doubts about, you know, God's existences. You know, it, it part of the the thesis really of, of the Bible is that we have free will and that's what hinges, you know, heaven and hell, um, upon. And, and so God's, you know, foreknowledge for, for all of that just was so interesting to me. And that's, that's what really got me into philosophy generally. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's so, it's so cool. Yeah. So on that, um, on that topic, I don't know if you have studied Leibniz at all, but not, not a whole lot. No. Well, in thinking about the divine about divine determinism and free will, I think he's great. So okay, 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 great. I'll have to look into him. Yeah, we. I think we only touched maybe a, a reading here or there in my undergrad work on on Leibniz. Um, but um, yeah, so let's so let's get into the paper specifically. Um, working working with the paper that I read first, the importance of free will. Um, that that paper is really largely about the importance of the reactive attitudes and the potential threat that determinism kind of intuitively gives us towards towards the idea that oh we ought to take the the objective stance because it is um, you know as you say in accordance with the facts. But but maybe before getting into um, kind of the main turn of the paper, maybe you could say a word about uh, what what I mean by objective and reactive attitudes. Ah, good. Right, so that the um, the term reactive attitudes is was coined by P.F. Strassen in another very classic um, deep and difficult paper called Freedom and Resentment, um, as was the term the objective attitude, which he used to contrast it. So basically, what um, I mean, the best thing to do would actually be to to read what he says, I think. But um, if you don't want me to do that, I will. Um, if you want to, sure. Uh, I'll start with actually some words of mine. In, in that article, Strawson um, wants to focus on what he calls the, the non-detached attitudes um, and reactions of offended parties and beneficiaries of such things as gratitude, resentment, forgiveness, love, and hurt feelings, which he calls attitudes of involvement or participation in human relationships. And he contrasts them with the objective attitude. And here's the long quotation where he's describing the objective attitude. To adopt the objective attitude to another human being is to see him perhaps as an object of social policy, as a subject for what in a wide range of sense might be called treatment as something certainly to be taken account, perhaps precautionary account of, to be managed or handled or cured or trained, perhaps simply to be avoided. The objective attitude may be emotionally toned in many ways, but not in all ways. It may include repulsion or fear. It may include pity or even love, though not all kinds of love. It cannot include the range of reactive feelings and attitudes which belong to involvement or participation with others in interpersonal human relationships. It cannot include resentment, gratitude, forgiveness, anger, or the sort of love which two adults can sometimes be said to feel reciprocally for each other. If your attitude towards someone is wholly objective, then though you may fight with him, you cannot quarrel with him. And though you may talk to him, even negotiate with him, you cannot reason with him. You can at most pretend to quarrel or to reason with him. Mm. So, um, so basically, I mean, Strawson's idea is that when we regard each other as morally responsible for what we're doing, for what we do, um, that's, that goes hand in hand with thinking it appropriate to, uh, to blame or credit, to resent or feel grateful towards a person for doing what they're doing. It's this idea that, you know, in doing it, you're um, you're showing something about who you are that you're, you know, that you're choosing to to manifest. And depending on what it is, you'll feel 
positive or negative feelings towards the other person in connection with that. Um, whereas when you think, oh, look, you know, you're just an automaton or, um, or a lower animal that doesn't have the kind of capacities for these um, feelings of goodwill or ill will, right? Then, then you take the objective attitude. You say, you know, this, this is just the way that breed of dog is, or this is, you know, this is just, um, this is what they're programmed to do. So that's the, the contact. And, and I mean, in that, in the paper you're talking about the importance of free will, it kind of starts with this idea that the reason we care so much about free will, or at least this is the reason I care so much about free will or the kind of freedom you need to be morally responsible is because um, I want those things to be deserved. I want, you know, I want it to be appropriate to either resent me for being bad or admire me for being good or, you know, love me for being, um, and to feel that way towards another person to live as if I'm in a, you know, in a world populated by automata would be very chilling. Mm. Yeah. And it's nicely exemplified. I mean, you, you say something like this in the paper, but you know, you, you wouldn't, um, you wouldn't have a, like this certain sort of gratitude or resentment towards, you know, your car that had broken down, for instance, right. you wouldn't really deeply blame the car in the same way that you would deeply blame a person who had wronged you. Um, right. and yeah. And, and so, I mean, in the beginning of the paper, um, you know, th this was this was a point that, you know, I, I said you really changed my mind in the second half of the paper. But in the first part, I I just had already agreed, you know, wholeheartedly with you that, you know, these attitudes are exactly, you know, what constitute interpersonal life. You know, if I treated people in my life who are close to me under the objective stance in, in its totality, you know, always um, viewing them as, you know, things to be managed or accounted for. I mean, that would really rob me of the deepest part of my relationship with them. Um, right. Yeah. And, and so um, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. I mean, when I first, you know, started like getting into these papers, I had, you know, and as you say, it's very natural for us to kind of default to the reactive attitudes. Um, but what's interesting is that, you know, I am sure as everyone has, has had taken the objective stance too, but it was more of a, it was more of a, like, I, I didn't really, I wouldn't have been able to kind of frame it like this. I mean, there's a huge difference. It's not just a difference in degree. It's really a difference in kind, the, the reactive versus the objective stance. And, um, you know, I just, I love, I love what you say in the paper about how, uh, you know, you use this phrase, our relationships would take on a hollow ring if, if we adopted the objective attitude in its totality. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, then, then there's, well, you know, I was actually curious, uh, the, the reason why I had encountered your paper at all was because I had read uh, a more recent paper by Tamler Summers, um, his 2007 paper. Yeah, you're aware of it, I guess. Uh, well, I'm not sure which paper. I mean, I, I know. Mm -hmm. um, I know his views in general. Mm -hmm. His I, I had read his 2007 paper, The Objective Attitude, where he's uh -huh. um, yeah directly trying to rebut your your thesis there. Right. Yeah, and I was I was curious. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you've like uh, you know in writing responded to that paper or not. But um, I was curious. Do you have any Do you have any thoughts on that paper? Um, I you know that would. It's been so long ago that. Mm. Um, that I, I read it. I think I, I thought it was a good paper, but mm -hmm. I, you know, didn't convince me. Um, yeah. So yeah, but I think I, I'm not really in a position to mm. respond to it now. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great, it's a really good paper, but again, I, I yeah, I didn't find it too convincing. Um, and you know, what's funny is, you know, he, he has since, you know, kind of reneged on that paper too, and said, you know, that this was just totally, you know, not, not my views at this point. And he, reverts much more to Strawson's perspective now. Um, yeah, which is cool. But yeah, I, I, I've encountered, I was like, I, I think I mentioned to you in the email, I had discussed your paper with a few friends and one, one friend in particular had agreed with Summers there. Um, and, you know, we were going back and forth and I, and I couldn't, it was hard for me to kind of, it was almost hard for me to believe someone that they wouldn't lose anything if, if they took the objective stance. Have you encountered people making that claim? Um, well, I, so Tamler himself, I know, I mean, mm. 
he was actually a graduate student when I was uh, uh, at Duke when I was at, at the beginning of my teaching at UNC. So he 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 took a course with me, and um, and you know he was already kind of a hardline uh, Galen Strassonian as opposed to P.F. Strassonian, <laughs> and. Um, and I, you know, and so he was, you know, defending that he that he had this attitude, that he thought this was the right attitude. But he was, he's also, in person, like a really uh, appealing person with really good relationships to, you know, and you know, he loves his daughter. He loves, you know, he's mm-hmm. got good friendships. He, so I, I found myself thinking, you know, you think you're doing this, but this is just not. This is not an accurate description of what you're thinking and feeling about them. That, that would be, that was my attitude at the time, but I, um, but you know, that's kind of an ad hominem thing that you would have to defend with personal experience. So, I'm not really sure what else to say. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's, it's hard to really challenge that without kind of doing a little bit of mind reading, which is always unfair. Um, yeah. I mean, actually, I mean, again, this is kind of ad hominem too. I do think there are people who, go through life um, with more of the objective attitude towards everyone around them. Um, and I and feel that that's right and don't feel like they're deprived or at least, you know, they think if I'm, I'm mm. living in accord with the facts and so on or whatever. Mm. Um, and, I, and I just think, yeah, those are people who are, there are limits to the kinds of relationships they can have. And, um, so I would, you know, from the point of view inside of uh, what we'll call Strassonian, a Strassonian set of values, of, meaning P.S. Strassen, mm-hmm. um, you know, I would regard that as a diminished life. But, uh, you know, it's, it's not that it's an unlivable life or a life that's completely, you know, horrifying. It, it just, it, it means that your relationships are, are much more instrumental, I guess. You might enjoy being with someone, but you don't, you don't have a meeting of minds or anything. You don't, you can't have that kind of, you know, soulmate relationship and you can't, you don't get angry with them. But on the other hand, um, well, I think anger is fine. I mean, you know, you can't, (laughs) you can't get close enough to them to be angry at them in the way we might get angry at people we care about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of it, it does seem to change your relationship with people as like, you know, other potential agents to more of just objects, you're, you're almost kind of surrounding yourself with more and more, like, you know, almost toys, in a sense, um, as opposed to people. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, look, to be fair, I, I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on this, if you want to move on. Um, you know, take uh, a pet. Um, I think the way I, I think in Strassen's Strassen himself would say, you know, the relationships you can have with a pet are all ones that are compatible with objective attitudes. So in that in the quote I read, it was like, look, you can. There's even a kind of love you can have for someone you take an objective attitude towards, um, but there are limits to that love, and there's other kinds you can't have. And I mean, I know there will be a lot of disagreement among pet lovers, depending on what kind of pet they have and so on about what, you know, what kinds of relationships are possible. But um, even someone who is, you know, relatively unsentimental about these things and says, look, you know, I know I I can't, I don't, I know that my, um, I mean, let it be a dog, though this is one of the more controversial ones for Good reason, I think. Um, you know, I will. I wouldn't resent my dog for doing something because they, you know, they can't really appreciate any reason not to or something. But still, the lo- you know, you can really love your dog, and you can really the dog can give you know bring a lot to your life and all. Even if you, you know, even if you draw the line in a way that you wouldn't to a potential soulmate, so to speak. And so, um, so it's not that it's terrible right? mm-hmm. it's just that it's, you know i'm aiming for something different and uh yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. Like I, I, I have a dog um, and yeah, it's, it's, you know, a relationship with a dog is just all good. But if every relationship in your life had that quality, something would be totally lost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so let's get to the, um, so the major turn of the paper is, you know, I think I, again, I said this in the email. I mean, I had to, at, when I first read this point by you, I, I honestly didn't get it at first. I was like, what, what is she going on about? You know, this, this comparison to, um, you know, the, the, you had the, the, uh, change between the unwilling addict and then the determined robot and then our determined selves. And so you, you lay out the point that there are many reasons or at least potential reasons to take either attitude, um, the objective attitude or the reactive attitude. But one, you might think very important potential reason to take the objective attitude is that it is, uh, an, an act which, uh, is living in accordance with the facts, as you say. Um, so maybe explain, if you could, what you mean by that reason specifically. Um, well, let me try anyway. Uh, I mean, the thought is, if you believe that if we're completely determined, then um, then it's not really up to us to you know, believe one thing or another, to choose what, you know, to choose to do one thing or another and so on, then, um, then the belief that, that a person is responsible or that resenting and feeling grateful to people is appropriate um, seems undermined seems like, well, if, if we are these totally determined beings, then we really shouldn't blame someone for being a jerk because he's determined to be a jerk. Um, we shouldn't love someone for being so, you know, kind because she's determined to be kind. It's not like she's choosing it. So you might think, um, a person who's got his eyes open, who's not in denial about their, the fact of determinism or in denial about the fact that determinism implies this um, is, you know, is being, is taking, taking their psychology where the arguments lead them, right? It, it, I mean, it's, it's just inaccurate to think that they have the kind of freedom that would warrant feelings like resentment and and indignation and gratitude and admiration. And so wanting to, you know, be true to the facts, you, you know, you stop having those feelings. You, you mm -hmm. take the objective attitude. Mm -hmm. And the kind of turn in the paper is that even though there's this, there's this kind of intuition that, that I think a lot of people would catch, and I caught it too, is that Oh, you know, it seems like taking the objective attitude, um, treating people with without this kind of guise of agency is the more rational move to make because, well, we, we do assume that people don't have true agency because determinism is true. But, you know, you point out, and this was so cool when it when it finally clicked for me that actually, you know, the act of taking an attitude, whether it be the reactive or the objective, I mean, to take an attitude um, is to act under the guise that, that you are agentic. And so it's, it's to, to take the objective attitude is to kind of betray what the thesis of the objective attitude is saying. And so in doing that, even that doesn't conform um, with the value of living in accordance to the facts, which everyone agrees is a value that, you know, well, most of us hold at least. Um, yeah. Right. And yeah. And so you've knocked out that kind of that potential value um, that a, a hard incompatibilist would put forth, um, which is, which is, I mean, it's really, it's really, it's just a cool point. And it, it kind of, um, you know, it left me thinking about, you know, if this isn't a value that is conserved by the objective attitude, then it, it sort of leaves us in a nice position to kind of think about 
you know, the, the maybe costs or benefits of taking either a, a stance, the objective or the reactive in certain situations. Um, because like, you know, a, a lot of my kind of like ho hopeful projects for grad school are about when either attitude is appropriate. And I, I was just presenting it at a conference a couple weeks ago about, you know, I'm I like one, one question, for instance, is, um, you know, I'm wondering do are there certain situations in which we are sort of morally obligated or maybe just just it's permissible to take the objective attitude um in order to preserve relationships uh, and not take them in their totality towards a relationship but just temporarily to kind of get past like grease the wheels of the relationship almost um and maybe maybe i could ask you about you know a potential example for instance so let's say you know let's say i have a family member um who holds, you know, some very antiquated view, some antiquated moral view, right? Mm -hmm. And I've talked with this family member, you know, multiple times, just many occasions, just trying to show them why this is just not a, a factual view to hold, it's not a good moral view to hold, et cetera, right? And, you know, we're at, you know, the Thanksgiving table for the umpteenth time, and that concern gets raised by them. Now, you know, normally your reactive attitudes there would be to, you know, to, to rebuke the person, to really morally castigate them, right? Like this, this is not a good view to hold, but I'm wondering in certain situations like that, I mean, that, that seems like a pristine case in which the objective attitude taken towards that person, you know, kind of helps you grease the wheels of the, of the Thanksgiving dinner a bit more. Um, and I was curious what you thought about the permissibility of doing something like that. Right. Um, well, it's a, it's a great uh, example. I, it, I'm actually, I've returned to thinking about responsibility a lot in my current work, and it's this kind this kind of thing that I'm thinking about a lot. So it's, okay, um, so it's very relevant to my current thoughts. Um, yeah, there. So there's there's a lot of different po ways one could go about about this. Um, one thing is to actually refer back to Strassen when he talks about the objective attitude and the reactive attitudes. He, he mentioned specifically that, look, we can take the objective attitude towards people. Um, and the issue is whether you take that exclusively and think like you, hmm. you that, right? Um, but when he said, he talks about how we can do it and sometimes do it, he, one of the phrases that is very memorable is to, uh, to remove or, or or reduce the strains of involvement. Hmm. And it's, a, and I mean, I think that's exactly apt to your kind of example. It's like, if I go, if I, if I respond to this person reactively in the, with the participant stance, we are gonna, you know, get into a horrible fight. It'll ruin Thanksgiving dinner. It might ruin <laughs> our relationship. And so you back off from that and you say, well, you know, he's a creature of his time, well, but, and so on. So, absolutely that's permissible hmm. that said i would also want to go in a couple different directions um one is um look none of us are completely responsible about everything we do we all have um blind spots in which we are behaving like automata <laughs> i mean they're not not literally automata but um you know i we're complicated creatures and we have defects where we can't see certain things where we can't, where we just have this uncontrollable response and you shouldn't take the rea reactive attitude to them. That doesn't mean, oh, well, they're not responsible human beings. It means with respect, I mean, you can take any kinds, there's hundreds of examples like this. I mean, take someone who's an addict, right? Mm. Um, well, being an addict isn't the only thing about this person, but it could be that with respect to a person's addiction, it could be, and I'm gonna keep that open, um, that it is appropriate. Certainly a therapist is gonna want to do, you know, say, all right, don't regard this as something that the person has the kind of freedom about, the kind of control over that you should regard them as morally responsible, right? This is something to be dealt with and it's to be managed, to be treated. This is something maybe the person himself should 
think of as something to be managed or treated for a while. Maybe, I mean, there. That's a, it's another controversial issue. I don't mean to, you know, put my, uh, my foot that too far out on the limb, but I mean, so it's, it's one kind of example, but anyway, we, right. In lots of ways, someone who is responsible about many, many things and for whom you have a participant relationship will still have aspects of their lives in which are, it's just unjustified to regard them as responsible for that. Right. Mm. So that's one thing. And so then, of course, you have to do that. Um, with respect to a question like what an example like yours, where I mean, let's just take, you know, the person is deeply sexist, let's say, mm. right? Um and you know when these things have come or you know, political, uh, I mean that. This is a huge thing in families, especially in recent years, uh, you know, where you just feel like you can't talk to this person or at any rate, you can't convince, the person is not gonna see things your way. You're not gonna see them that way. What should you do? Um, I think these are difficult issues and you have to, and, and they're based on very, I mean, what what's the right thing to do or the best thing to do is gonna be very personal. Hmm. Um, in a way, I feel like, look, there are a lot of people who, let's take someone you disagree with and where you think they are just not seeing things right, their values are wrong. Maybe you understand where they came from and why they have those values, but you also think, and there's no reason why you shouldn't, they're capable of doing better. Mm. I mean, I you know, I look at my own life, I have, lived through a lot of change, social changes in which social values um, and understanding of certain kinds of social issues has, has really, um, you know, have really moved far. And, you know, I, as a creature of my time, I, you know, I had one set of attitudes when I was in high school and, um, you know, and the more I, lived, the more I've read, the more I've talked to people, you know, I mean, a lot of my attitudes have changed. And so I know look, people can change. Hmm. Um, and sometimes I feel like, well, if you want the right thing to do is to try to get them to change. I mean, if they can, and also to listen to them, because maybe they're the ones who are right, and you got to change. I mean, hmm. uh, so I don't, when you say, is it permissible to just take the objective attitude, set, you know, say, look, this is who you are, this is who I am. We're not going to hold each other responsible for that. We're just going <laughs> to drop. We're just going to manage it. Um, sometimes that is obviously the right thing to do. Sometimes it's the only right thing to do. Sometimes it's an option that is better, all things considered, for peacefulness, for your own <laughs> peace of mind, for your relationship, whatever. But sometimes I think people should really try to go beyond that. Um, you have to learn how to go beyond that in a effective way and in a in a respectful way. But yeah, um, and and sometimes I think if your if your response to someone and you go into these arguments, maybe you do it multiple times. And in the end, to say, you know what, you're just a jerk for thinking these things or for 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 going on in this way. Sometimes that's appropriate. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah. So I guess I, you know, I think these are complicated questions, but it's good to at least see them as complicated and mm -hmm. nuanced. And it seems like, um, I mean, it, it's it also seems like taking the objective attitude generally doesn't commit you to necessarily any specific course of action with respect to the conversation. So for instance, you could take the objective attitude and, you know, just completely kind of distance yourself from that person. This is a malfunctioning robot essentially, right? That, that has malfunctioned in a way to believe these things, but also you could take the objective stance um, as I think Cheshire Calhoun um, has this paper about, you know, forgiveness in the sense where you're almost separating the action from the person. Um, right. And, and you can still kind of allow yourself to, to feel real, you know, deep, deep anger, reactive anger at the views themselves, but sort of 
take a take a view towards the person that allows you to um to you know hopefully be more persuasive in a way that's not maybe corrupted by your reactivity in that instance which isn't obviously isn't to say that reactivity isn't isn't sometimes warranted um also but yeah yeah yeah, that's okay that's super interesting um and the and the point you said about um you know viewing someone kind of as a creature of their time or or something you know under the lens of determinism um makes me makes me kind of think about this is a question that i really wanted to ask you about in asymmetrical freedom um your the earlier paper so this was um, by the way it's the earlier paper in terms of publication i actually wrote the importance of free will first but didn't okay didn't send it out for publication and so it was just uh that's just a a autobiographical fact (laughs) okay okay you know what that that actually makes sense having read both of the papers i i would see that yeah being being congruent um so in um asymmetrical freedom you you um I, I might have mentioned this over email, but you totally changed my mind about what you can do with determinism's truth in the beginning of that paper. So I, I had been totally, you know, what I might call now sort of a naive, hard incompatibilist where I would say, you know, well, and, and it's intuitive. Like, I think almost everyone has this intuition that, you know, if you just admit the thesis of determinism, you know, we are comprised of things that none of us chose, right? None of us are causa sui. Um, and that seems to very directly imply, at least, that no one is morally responsible or the condition of moral responsibility never obtains. And, and you, you know, you point out that, okay, if you're saying that because determinism is true, therefore there is no moral responsibility, the contrapositive of that statement has to be true. So you might ask, you know, what would make moral responsibility obtain? And if, and if you've hinged it on that statement, then you would have to be endorsing the idea that for moral responsibility to be the case, we would have to be undetermined or, or live in an indeterminate universe somehow. And, and you point out that, you know, that condition doesn't really seem to make any sense either, because we would be something very close to Frankfurt's wanton, you know, where we don't have any care really over our desires. We're just kind of moved by the wind almost. Um, or we would have no character coherence. Um, am, I, am I understanding your point in that paper correctly? I, it's been such a long time. I have to remember <laughs> exactly what, um, what the point was. Mm-hmm. I guess I, um, what I was thinking was um, our understanding of what it would be to be morally responsible. I mean, a morally responsible person is someone who um, is capable of being determined by a recognition of what's right and good. Right? I mean, when we blame someone for not doing what's right and good, it's against the background of thinking you could have recognize what's right and good and behave that way and you didn't and that's why I'm blaming you. And then of course, in the positive case, when we praise someone for saving the child from the, you know, from drowning or whatever, it's not just because they did it, but because they did it presumably due to the recognition there's a child who needs help, I have to go in and save them. So the idea there is in the background of responsibility uh, of our assumptions of what it would be to be responsible is the assumption that people are capable of seeing things and having what they see determine what they do, Hmm. right? So the idea that we're not determined um, by anything seems incompatible with what it would take to be responsible, even though the idea that we are determined by anything seems (laughs) incompatible with the idea that we could be responsible. That's the Right. That's the paradox. Mm-hmm. Does that sound like what you're. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it's such a cool point because you don't, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll just say like when, when you're first, like as a person who's kind of new to this literature, generally speaking, I mean, the, the incompatibilist intuition there is so, it just seems so obvious um, until you really think about it. It's exactly what you say. I mean, it, it, you know, you say in the paper, you know, to be, to be not determined in any way would just be to 
to be able to have an interest, but to act against it for reasons that also didn't conserve your interest. I mean, it would, it would almost be nonsensical. Right. It's, it's sort of the ability to be completely mad or like I you know, to do something <laughs> really regard as, you know, psychopathic or, or just, you know, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. But like, that's, that's hardly an ability in the sense of something one, one would regard as a good thing. Right. Yeah. And, and so th- this is something that I was really, I mean, I've been thinking about since reading the paper. Um, it's okay. So, so it seems like you're totally right that you can't, you can't just say because determinism is true, therefore, you know, moral responsibility just does not obtain in any way, right? Because of the counterfactual that you laid out. Um, but I'm, but I'm kind of wondering if, because it still seems like, okay, if we say that the thesis of determinism is true, generally, that seems to kind of almost like open the door to the objective stance. Um, because if people weren't, if people were indetermined in the way that you lay out, that doesn't make any sense, right? The objective attitude would be kind of odd, in my opinion, because it wouldn't be tracking anything. Like people wouldn't conform to patterns of behavior, right? Um, so if we if we do say that you know d- the thesis of determinism is true i don't think that it because of your points in both of the papers i'm not sure that it either demands the objective attitude or even even gives it some like huge theoretical weight but i wonder if it gives it some kind of practical power almost so the very fact that we are kind of creatures of all of our own times and we're determined by these things it, it almost seems to kind of, you know, unlock the door a little bit to, to the objective attitude and it makes it more efficacious. Um, I, I don't know. Does that, does that thought seem to have any traction for you? Well, that's interesting. I, I, um, I guess I, there are two, two, th- two totally in different thoughts that your comments suggest to me. I mean, the first, um, your idea that well, if 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 determinism is not true, mm-hmm. I mean, in in particular, I mean, there's I should to be more specific. If like people are just not determined by anything and therefore kind of completely unpredictable, right? Because they their behavior is random and right, um, then the objective attitude wouldn't be appropriate because it. Um, I mean, I think what you're what you're emphasizing there is the aspect of the objective attitude as um, a way of looking at people as to be managed or treated or handled. Mm-hmm. Well, you, if someone is unpredictable and there's nothing, there's no handle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you know, you can't manipulate them because there's nothing to hold on to, right? I mean, there's mm-hmm. um, so you in that sense, I agree. The objective attitude of all right, I'm going to treat this as an instrument or a tool which I will manipulate or negotiate with that way. Um, that wouldn't make any sense. If people, but on the other hand, there's another way of thinking about the objective attitude as just not the reactive attitudes. I mean, the point is um, not that you're actually successfully managing or handling or treating anything, but just that you are saying, look, this is not a person, mm-hmm. not a subject to subject kind of relationship uh, so you just have to it's like it's like living in a world of you know uh you know radioactive particles it'll just go off at any unpredictable time how do you do it i don't know um do you say i'm taking an objective attitude towards these particles well yes actually you are even though it's it's not it's of no practical value but it's it's the right value you know you might still think that's it's better than the alternative. So I, I guess I don't think a kind of extreme non-determinism would would not, is incompatible with the objective attitude in that sense. Mm-hmm. But I, I, the other thing I wanted to say, which is completely a completely separate point is that um, the way I was thinking in that paper and maybe in, in general about what does it take to be responsible? Wasn't, well, determinism has to be true in order for us to um, 
you know, be able to be determined by good reasons. Um, the thought is, it, it's more like this. It's that, look, there is an intuition that, or at least it feels like the right description of an intuition that if determinism is true, then we're not responsible, the objective attitude is appropriate. But if that intuition were correct, it would, um, it would lead to this paradox. Mm. And that therefore, rather than saying determinism is true or determinism isn't true, the point is to say, give up that intuition or rather, it's not so, what I really wanna do is not so much give it up as get underneath it, try to interpret it. Like why are you having, why does that seem like a correct intuition? Mm. Is maybe you're, you're confuting something or not recognizing a distinction or something like that. And so it's not so much that I think determinism is true or that it's not true. It's that I think the connection between the truth of determinism and the absence of moral responsibility is what we need to uh, investigate or uh, rec or raise questions about because it leads to something paradoxical and incoherent. Hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, I I I don't have, you know, I've I've got mixed intuitions about that thought that I just kind of laid out. Um, and I'm definitely still trying to work through it. Um, I well, okay, yeah. I can tell you one way in which I this is one way of of uh, uh, paraphrasing what I was trying to do in that paper. It's that you know. So what I actually think is going on is we have this intuition um, that if we're determined, we're not responsible, and that's. But the, the reason for that is that we're picturing determinism as like determinism by physical forces and right? mm -hmm. like i'm just being pushed about um so my belief isn't really a response to an argument it's a response to neurons firing which is a response to some other physical thing and it sort of takes the, the psychological out of the picture mm -hmm. almost right but um but if you can, if you think of determinism as compatible with psychology, um, with our, you know, I can be determined, well, take, let's say, I can be determined to believe that um, two plus two equals four. Well, there's one way I could be determined to it, which is, you know, a neuroscientist, you know, tie some electrodes to my brain and pop, implants that belief in me right mm. all right well that would be one way of being determined to believe it in which i have no i deserve no credit no blame it just like and i am totally helpless with it but the actually more realistic thing is that you're determined to believe that because through a gradual series <laughs> of events you you learn arithmetic right mm. you you know you go to school your teacher tells you you know here's what you know here's one pebble here's two pebbles who's three pebbles when you put two i mean you know just go through it and you come to you're determined to reach that conclusion through this series of steps but that series of steps is also the series of steps by which you actually it's not just like i'm determined to have this belief i I reason to this belief. I mean, that's such a simple belief. Maybe reason is right, but you can go, you build on that uh, onwards. And when you think, oh, you're determined by reason and good education, like education has taught me how to, you know, add, you know, three digit numbers to each other, or education has taught me, how, you know, how to balance my checkbook, right? To think that oh well I'm not responsible for for it doesn't seem so obvious anymore. Determinism doesn't seem to undermine your ability to balance your checkbook. Hmm. Um, I know people don't write checks anymore, much less balance them on their own. So this is that was a really outdated example. <laughs> but all right, we'll come up with some other example. But sure. anyway, you um, it 
Right. So my, one thought is, look, we get this intuition because we have a very narrow view of what what being determined mm-hmm. by something would imply about us. And if once you get rid of that, the the intuition might kind of start fizzling. Yeah. And you have, I mean, you have this one quote from the paper that I love. You say, I am claiming that whether an agent is morally responsible depends not on whether, but on how that agent is determined. And what you just said makes total sense. I mean, so, you know, you lay it out in the, in the paper with the, the capital of uh, Nevada is Carson City. And so you can ask, you know, what, why do I believe that? Well, one reason is you can spell out this deterministic picture about how, you know, you were manipulated or taught into believing that. Well, another le- level of analysis is that you answered that because Carson City is the capital of Nevada. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's, so I, I take it that that is where kind of your style of compatibilism really gets its grounding is that we're determined in the right way. And that's how responsibility can be compatible with the thesis of determinism. Right. Okay. Well, at least responsibility for good things. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Right. I mean, if I'm, if I'm determined to believe that Reno is the capital of Nevada, um, then there's a further question, like, can I be responsible for getting it wrong? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, I mean, that asymmetry point there is so, it's, it's such a cool and really, I think it's a wonderful point because it, it's, um, you know, it has a happy, it has a happy result too. I mean, we get to enjoy people really and, and delve into the positive reactive attitudes, but it, but it kind of undercuts the negative ones in a, in a way, um, which, which I love. And it, it seems so, um, like it, it seems both it's one of these points where it's both theoretically intuitive to me but it's also consequentially just a wonderful conclusion also uh right well it certainly it certainly um mitigates a lot of the negative uh attitudes i mean i i don't Mm. actually feel confident that we are determined at least in the relevant ways to do all the things we do i mean i don't um Mm -hmm. so uh so i do think some of the time we are responsible for doing the wrong thing <laughs> yeah. um, because it's in the relevant way. I feel like I could have done better. I could have known better. I didn't, I failed. And mm. the failure is on me, but it's not compatible with a certain kind of determinism. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is motioning towards your point of it's, we have to be determined in the right way. I take right. it. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's super interesting. Um, so you said, I, I know we're coming up on the hour mark, so I want to be mindful of your time, but you said you're, you're kind of circling back around to responsibility questions, um, again in your work. Yes. Right. Okay. Okay, cool. What, um, are there any kind of specific areas that you're, um, looking to focus on again? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, I haven't changed my mind so much about anything, but I, um, but things uh, are more complicated than I, I guess I than I felt they were <laughs> when I wrote those early things. Um, I, one thing that I'm um, interested in is, um, and actually this is connected with your relative at the Thanksgiving table. I think mm-hmm. is the idea that. Um, when we think about responsibility, and especially when we think about responsibility for bad things, um, we have a certain paradigm of, of what it takes for someone to be blameworthy, which involves, which does involve some kind of freedom to do otherwise. Um, and so the long history of people worried about freedom and determinism is is focused on their ability to do otherwise. Um, And that's connected to a conception of being blameworthy that has to do with being accountable. I, you know, I could have done it. It seems I'm struck now with the degree to which um, even if you grant that a person 
didn't, well, couldn't have been expected to do otherwise at the time of some bad action. Um, the fact that they're capable of doing better mm. um, seems to me to be as important to responsibility as whether they were responsible at that moment and whether or, or whether they were blameworthy for that action at that moment. It, so basically, I think the thought is this, still sticking to Strawson and the importance the importance of responsibility having to do with the importance of the reactive attitudes and the importance of being able to relate to each other with these kind of warm attitudes of, you know, some of them positive, some of them negative. Seems to me we focus too much in thinking about responsibility on these individual acts that you that for which we want to hold people accountable, meaning. Hmm. you know, they should be punished or they owe us an apology, right? And I think of all the ways in which, I mean, the ways I relate to the people that I have personal relationships with, there's a lot less of that and a lot more of just kind of criticizing someone for having the character and values they have or really being, you know, feeling affection to someone for the character and values they have. It's not so much you're responsible for this action or that, or you're accountable. It's rather, you know, why do you see the world this way? Why don't you think differently? And um, I think the ability to do otherwise, the ability to have control over it becomes much less important mm. than the ability to, to see the world right, which you don't have control. I mean, you don't have control it's sort of implicit in my earlier views too. You don't have control over what values you actually have. I mean, you can try to be more open-minded, you can try to think, you know, be more reflective, but in the end, you're gonna have the values that seem right to you, which is not up to you to choose, right? And, and hearing an argument isn't necessarily gonna change your mind in a minute. It might take years of, <laughs> you know who it's kind of magical anyway the point mm. my my interest right now is in seeing responsibility in a way that it that and seeing what the real the real puzzles about responsibility are um are i think are should not all be placed on these moments of action and will and decision and more on our ability to which is not not within our control, our ability to respond to the world in ways that um, you know are better and worse. Mm. That sounds yeah, that sounds super interesting. Um, A little vague, sorry. <laughs> no, no, that, that that sounds very interesting. Um, so what I'll do in closing is is I'll link um, both of the the PDFs to the papers that we talked about. But um, if people want to kind of um, I mean, I know you've written on on many other subjects. Is there kind of a central website that I can point people to or, or leave a link in the description for? I've never been very good about uh, <laughs> managing, you know, mm -hmm. a, a website. I mean, I'm, I have a, um, a, a link through the UNC philosophy, University of North Carolina philosophy department, which will link to, to a CV with, you know, lots of things that I've written. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I've not been very good about trying to put it in any kind of order or explain myself. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll leave a link to the UNC um, website okay. then. Um, yeah. Susan, stay on the line if you would, but thank you so much for doing this. This was a ton of fun. Yeah, for me too. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I, uh, I really, like I said to Susan after we uh, ended the call, it's, it's an amazing experience to... Uh, to get to talk directly with an author whose work I cite in some of my um, prospective writing. So uh, thank you to, uh, to Susan for coming on the show again. And like I said, I'll include links to her uh, UNC Chapel Hill philosophy website, uh, where you can find uh, the list of all of her publications and written works uh, there. If you want to support this show, uh, you can do so by sharing it on Twitter or on social media generally. You can rate it on Apple Podcasts, 
You can like this video or subscribe on YouTube or on your RSS feed. You can discuss uh, these episodes on your own show and link back to these, or you can connect me with guests or uh, recommended topics to cover. And you can contact me at Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And as always, thank you for listening and keep struggling to escape the cave.